Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Yvonne Winch at Sanchez, the governor's office and state politics reporter at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me this week at our Arizona Capitol Bureau are Maria Paletta, diversity and inequality reporter. I'm Lily Altavina. I'm the Mesa Gilbert reporter. I'm Rachel Langang. I cover higher education. Dustin Gardner. I cover the state legislature. This week on The Gaggle, should DACA students get in-state college tuition? What happens next for the teacher pay movement in Arizona? And what's the status of Governor Doug Ducey's gun plan? But first, a last-minute decision by the Trump administration to reinstate a citizenship question in the 2020 census could hurt Arizona more than most states because of its large immigrant population, around 13, 14 percent. The federal government wanting to inquire about citizenship status as part of its official decennial count, and it could further dissuade immigrants from participating, critics worry, leading to a sizable undercount of the state's population the consequences could be significant and lasting. Maria, you spent some time reporting on this story and talking to a lot of people. What are the potential implications of bringing back the citizenship question? In terms of the consequences for Arizona, they could be pretty significant for the reason you mentioned, our huge immigrant population. One main uh, potential consequence is political. Census population data is used to determine the number of house seats each state gets. An undercount could also threaten some of our federal funding. Uh, we get about $13.5 billion as a state for Medicare, Title I schools, highway construction, lower income housing subsidies, and other, other programs. So if there's an undercount, that could threaten some of that funding. I mean, how does the census process work? I mean, do, do these workers go to people's homes? Is there a concern that this will, you know, I, I could see it potentially driving people deeper underground or in the shadows, uh, especially in this uh, Trump era where, you know, a year ago we had a lot of a lot of raids and people being uh, swept up. Absolutely. Before we even switched administrations nationally, Arizona had an undercount, a significant undercount on the last decennial census. Um, just for Latino children four and under, there were an estimated 32,000 that went uncounted. So uh, experts believe that's because of, as you mentioned, the immigration climate at the time, also the recession and housing crisis and that displacing families. So we've already struggled to get that population counted accurately. Now, given what's happening nationally, people are even more concerned about sharing any details about their status, also sharing details about relative status. There's a concern that if census enumerators come knocking, even somebody who's a citizen might not answer if they have a relative, say their mom or sister is undocumented. I know that there's been some talk about taking the census online. Do you think that will kind of serve as like a buffer for some of these issues or do you think it'll make it worse? That's a tricky question. I think it could maybe help in the sense of knowing that it's coming directly from the census versus is this person showing up at my door really a census worker? But if the general concern is if I share my information with the federal government, I may be targeted later because of my immigration status, moving it online is not gonna help with that element. Top officials in California are suing over this question. What are Arizona's 
top elected officials saying about it. Governor Ducey has not spoken out about this. There are some state and congressional legislators who have criticized this decision, again, talking about the potential for an undercount and the consequences with funding, political clout, and so forth. There are several who have not yet jumped into the fray, uh, likely because it is very politically charged for both blue and red states. Is there a sense as to whether or not this question will actually even make it into the census? I mean, clearly we've had a president who has flip-flopped and taken different positions depending on the time of day. That could happen here, presumably. It could change. This uh, this decision that came out last week has been more concrete than conversations that happened before, which were essentially rumors, hey, we're considering doing this. This was a formal announcement. Now, as you mentioned, there are lawsuits that are challenging this question or the addition of this question, so that could change things. The Washington Post had a, a really interesting story this week about how uh, the uh, citizenship question years ago, decades ago, actually helped get people to take them to the internment camps that were uh, established years ago. Again, like, is there any potential chance that this could happen here? That's the concern, and that is the exact example that's been brought up by um, people in the Asian immigrant community. Arizona also has one of the largest um, Asian immigrant populations, or fastest growing, I should say. So there's definitely concern there. And, and again, that's the example that they point to, this idea that if you give this information over, it can be used against you later, whether that's to round you up, um, round people in your family up, and other negative consequences. It seems, too, as though this has really empowered some of these uh, groups that represent, you know, minority-owned businesses and, uh, you know, community members, they seem to be coming out pretty strong, maybe stronger than normal against this. I was actually surprised by that because often you'll have um, chambers of commerce and so forth who will try to stay out of politically charged things. I've seen most everybody come out against it in terms of heads of those groups who, again, work with immigrant populations or children of immigrants. Lily, you spent quite a bit of time inside a degraded school in Mesa at Keno Junior High. At that school, 86% of students are eligible for the free and reduced price lunch program, which is obviously a key indicator of poverty. Um, more than a third of, res of residents living around uh, that school also fall below the poverty line, and that is more than twice the rate of Mesa proper. Your reporting comes as the governor and state leaders are grappling with various issues tied to education, namely teacher pay. What were the big takeaways from your reporting? Well, you know, I think I think the story kind of complements the issues that are happening right now because the the D letter grades and, and school letter grading grading has been extremely controversial in Arizona for for years and years on end, and how it correlates with poverty. Some have said it's a measure of poverty, um, and it, it kind of shows that the teacher frustrations are are beyond teacher pay. It's it's in school funding. It's respect in a lot of ways. The principal of this school, Keiko Dilbeck, a lot of the things that she said is it, it didn't feel like when when her school got a D letter grade, it, it stung and it felt like the state legislature didn't wasn't respecting her or her school or what was happening. They weren't 
recognizing the school for what it was, what it fully is, but but just looking at test scores and, and schools in impoverished areas often struggle with test scores, especially in math and English language arts. Many of the students are English language learners. Many of the students are on IEPs, so they need special education services. And, and you know, neighborhood schools like Keno especially are getting leaned on hard for special education services with, you know, this explosion of charter schools. So, so this is kind of a, a hugely explosive area for schools. How does that that letter ranking affect the, the morale? I think, I think it can kind of trickle down to everyone. And that's what I found when I talked to teachers and students and principals and administrators. Everyone felt the letter grade. Everyone felt, you know, what it was like to be labeled as a minimally performing school. So you had teachers who said they were so disappointed and happy that I was coming in there and, and seeing what they were doing on a daily basis. Teachers who said it didn't really feel like the state had ever set foot in their school. You know, I think I think one legislator had stepped foot in this school. You'd mentioned the idea that the letter grades themselves are controversial, and I think there's been some interest in getting rid of them or redoing them or looking at it more holistically. What are the prospects of getting rid of those grades? You know, right now in Arizona, it's it's not great. I don't think that they're going to get rid of them, but they are thinking about expanding the state letter grade system. So, so implementing, I think it's Sylvia Allen's bill where it would implement a dashboard to look at other factors more than just test scores. Um, and, and that seems to have wide support in the ledge. And I, th- I think it's awaiting a House vote. Um, but that's been pretty well supported. So there is there is talk about changing them. Um, last year's grades, the grades you know that Kino got, those still aren't finalized. So so grades could change as the State Board of Education kind of tinkers with its recipe. What does the school say they need to improve? I mean, oftentimes it does come down to funding when you're talking about not creating a permanent class of haves and have-nots. Is that the same case here? Yeah, I think in Keno Junior High and, and just across the state, the the rallying call is, is more funding, more funding for support staff, more funding for, you know, special education. I was talking to the Mesa Teachers Union head this morning, and one thing he said is, you know, he has a special education counselor who is working with 40 kids, and they're, they're an itinerant counselors so they go from school to school the the average or the suggested for the suggested num- suggested number of kids for special education counselors is 18 so that's more than double of of what of a caseload for those people and also you know you have Dobson High which is a huge campus they have four custodians and that's probably because they can't hang on to people on they can't hang on to support staff on minimum wage because if you were a custodian, would you go to a school where there's increased pressure and there's kids who are probably making trouble? Or would you go to a store and, and clean that store, which is probably a little more manageable? And I think these are some of the pressures that have led to this very well-organized movement on teacher pay, on education funding. You know, we've seen sick outs recently. We've seen these marches. We've seen a a uh, pretty well-organized social media effort. Uh, the governor's office would say that, um, you know, that this is to uh, help David Garcia, who they see as their chief primary rival in the general election in November. But clearly, you know, the pressure is mounting for them to do something more than what they have already done. What, what 
uh, do you think your reporting says with this story kind of about the about the larger issue of education funding in Arizona and what's next for this movement? Yeah, you know, when I think it comes to this movement, the, the pressure is absolutely on and it's not going away because the issues that I saw at Kino are, are deep seated issues. They're, you know, it's it's a challenge of trying to teach math to, to students who are still not there, trying to teach reading to students who are starting at a first grade level when, you know, you only have a certain amount of teachers and a certain amount of funding. Um, so so it's kind of trying to balance all those things. It's a juggling act. And what's next is they don't quite know yet. There are walk-ins planned on April 11th across the state. There is talk of a statewide sick out, a statewide strike. But, you know, what the teachers union guy was telling me this morning is that he still doesn't know what that will look like. The movement still doesn't know what that will look like. And they don't know if they'll get paid, they'll don't know they don't know if they'll really have to make up days. It depends on the district. So there's a lot of things up in the air. And one thing he said, I asked him, you know, if if those demands aren't met with a, a statement of action, with a big statement, what's next? And he said, Well, it might come down to the ballot box in a couple of years. You know, we might have to continue organizing, might lose teachers from that movement if we do that, if we go fully political if we support a candidate, but they're not there yet. Is there a sense that all of this pressure from teachers will actually translate to more money in the budget somehow? I, I think that there is. Um, and, and the rallying cry is really, you know, those corporate tax cuts. They want to get rid of those corporate tax cuts. Um, it's unclear how much of a impact that would make. A 20% raise we calculated would be about $680 million. Uh, added to Arizona's budget, so that's that's quite a lot of money. Sounds like a lot of money, but when you distribute it out to all the schools and per pupil funding, and you know, it it really probably isn't all that much. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the figures specifically, you know, compared to other states, compared to the national median, even if they got a twenty percent raise, we would still be below neighboring states like New Mexico and Utah. Um, and Republican leaders in the legislature and Governor Ducey, they they haven't really directly responded to this request for a twenty percent raise. Basically, they've responded by emphasizing investment investments that have already been made in education. So it doesn't seem like they're inclined to make a big change in the next couple of weeks as the legislature negotiates a budget. They're saying they want more education funding, but it seems a little hazy whether something like a 20% raise could actually become a reality. The Save Our Schools Arizona group, and this is the the group of teachers and parents who um, banded together to force the referendum on the school voucher style program, the ESA program, they initially asked for an 11%. They called for an 11% raise. And if I was a betting girl, I would bet that that's the number that people are really looking at. Not that I have any inside knowledge, but um, I think that that would probably be a much more realistic number than the 20%. Dustin, uh, weeks ago, the governor released a plan aimed at preventing mass killings in Arizona schools. Uh, that plan obviously faced quite a bit of criticism with Democrats and some conservative lawmakers. He did get kudos from a lot of other lawmakers for at least trying to do something, especially in a state like Arizona, and he is a Republican governor. His plan essentially re revolves around keeping um, weapons out of the hands of people who are threatening and to improve student safety by putting more counselors and more police officers inside of schools. We really haven't heard much about this plan or where it's at since it was released. Do you have a sense of what's happening with it? That's sort of what's been striking about the whole thing. You know, the governor, it was about two weeks ago, the governor rolled out his big plan to address school safety. Um, and, you know, we all thought a bill would emerge at some point fairly 
soon after that, and nothing's come out yet. And that seems to speak to just the difficulty the governor seems to be having getting support. Um, on the right, he's got Republican legislators who are very skeptical about some pieces of this bill. They're getting pressured hard by gun rights groups. Um, and then on the left, you have Democrats who are very opposed to the idea of putting more police officers in schools. Um, but this week, uh, one thing that emerged that seems to be a, a pretty big sticking point is the push by some Republican lawmakers to um, arm some teachers or school staff, um, specifically Senate President Steve Yarbrough um, is pushing this idea of a program that would train and provide janitors, principals, teachers with um, a secured weapon and special weapons training. And House Speaker J.D. Mesnard supports that, too. Um, but this, the sticky point of this is the governor has previously said he doesn't want to arm teachers. He thinks teachers should be focused on teaching. Um, so I don't know. The governor might need to bend on that if he's going to get Republican support. On the flip side with Democrats, the efforts to increase um, school resource officers, that is, that's a non-starter for many of them. So I think the governor is in a pretty narrow corner here. Do you think he knew that he would be in a narrow corner here? I mean, is there some sort of thought out there um, that he released this plan knowing the the difficult the difficulties that it could have at the legislature, but it also, you know, kind of gives him cover that, it, look, at you know, at least he tried to do something come re-election time. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point. I, I mean, the governor's advisors must have known that this would be a tough road. I mean, there's a reason Arizona hasn't passed any laws to tighten gun, gun, gun rules in many years. Um, in fact, they've gone in the opposite direction almost every year. Um, so he must have known it was a difficult road. And, the, you know, the politics on this is interesting. I was even hearing that the governor's office was talking to Democrats about um, whether they would they could deliver their whole caucus to vote for this bill if he would include a measure that would increase background checks. Um, so, yeah, it seems like the governor's office is re- working pretty hard to try to find the coalition in the legislature that would get this through. And so far, it just doesn't seem to be there. Rachel, you were in the courtroom of the Arizona Supreme Court this week as uh, the judges heard oral arguments on the legality of allowing DACA students to pay in-state tuition rates. These are young immigrants who were brought to the U.S. by uh, their parents illegally, uh, but have been granted a certain status. Uh, The case pits Arizona Attorney General Mark Brnovich against the Maricopa Community Colleges. Uh, and they are arguing for keeping those in-state rates. What are the arguments on both sides here? So the community colleges have said that uh, DACA serves as a form of lawful presence in the United States, and because of that, um, they can give in-state tuition rates to DACA recipients. And this all stems from there's a voter-approved law in 2006 called Prop 300 that says no public benefits can go to people who aren't in the country legally. So the state has said that that applies to DACA recipients, and the community colleges have construed lawful presence differently. So the argument is over what exactly it means to be in the country legally, um, even if that status is temporary. And so they're kind of looking toward federal laws, some state laws, all over the place to find out what definition should we use for lawful presence. How did the judges react to the argument? Uh, They reacted, like I mentioned, there's several uh, various, I guess, definitions of what lawful presence is. So they were probing both sides to see, you know, how are you defining it? Why are you defining it this way? Can you back up um, your definition of lawful presence with different definitions elsewhere in uh, federal and state law? 
And then there were also, there were some questions about, you know, what is a public benefit? Is, is in-state tuition, tuition technically a, a benefit? Something like um, SNAP is very clearly a payment and a benefit, whereas something like in-state tuition, you're not giving a payment, you're more like not paying for something. So is that considered a benefit or a type of assistance? Uh, so really getting in on these definitional meanings and how they apply to this group of young people who want to go to school and, and pay a fair rate for it and advance and, you know, have have futures, basically. Do you have a sense of what this says about the kind of the broader issue of how Arizona elected officials view this this group of kids. I mean, we're we're talking about a a law stemming from a Russell era, Russell Pierce era. Um, it seems to me that some attitudes, at least, may have changed or evolved on this issue. I mean, it's definitely political. Outside the courtroom, uh, David Garcia, who's running against Doug Ducey, he was filming videos with the DACA recipients, being like, "If I'm governor, I'm going to help these kids, and I want to help them get an ed- education." So, the governor's mostly been inactive on this front. I know he came out and said that we should the, the federal government should extend permanent status to those kids. But other than that, he he really hasn't said much about these lawsuits and he hasn't tried to stop them or anything. Um, the attorney general has said he, his job is just to follow the law and make sure it's being enforced. He's not a policymaker, so he can't decide whether the law is valid or not. Um, which is a bit of a deflection. Um, and when he was asked questions about this uh, in the outside the courtroom, and he, he had some confrontations with some DACA recipients on Friday before the Monday hearing, he uh, pointed to his other lawsuit against uh, the Board of Regents where he talks about how tuition is just too high in general, saying, you know, well, look what I'm doing over here, um, which uh, they're, di- they're dif- different issues. So he hasn't wanted to weigh in on the substantive issue of should should DACA recipients get in-state tuition, um, aside from, obviously, moving forward with this lawsuit. Rachel, one thing you've emphasized in your reporting is just kind of the personal impact this would have on students. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, just how much of a barrier this would be for some of them? So at Arizona universities, in-state tuition is, let's say, like $10,000, whereas out-of-state tuition is over $30,000. So we're talking about three times more money, and that's just for one year. So their educations get drawn out. A lot of them perhaps drop out of school, um, maybe go to community college, and it really just hinders their ability to advance. It hinders their ability to um, get an education, which for a lot of people is a part of their American dream. So for kids who grew up in Arizona, went to Arizona high schools, want to go to Arizona colleges and universities, it just creates this massive barrier. For our final segment, we bring you Give Us the Records and or who hasn't called you back this week? (laughs) Maria... Who hasn't given you the records or called you back? Continuing on with the census theme, I am going into my eighth or nine week of uh, waiting on responses from the Federal Census Bureau about some Native American census issues. Even before this citizenship question and the surrounding controversy happened, there were worries that some of the new 
techniques and strategies they're they're thinking about using for the 2020 census would lead to an undercount of Arizona's native population. Lily. Uh, I am waiting on requests from the cities of Glendale, Gilbert, and Chandler. And uh, I hope they get back to me soon because I'm on deadline for it. Come on, cities. Dustin. I'm going to switch it up this week and give a shout out. Um, All session, I've been trying to get the calendars of legislative leadership. Um, The GOP has not met my request, or at least not met it in full. Um, But Senate Minority Leader Katie Hobbs and House Minority Leader Rebecca Rios have both fulfilled that request every week. So thank you. Kudos to them. And Rachel. Um, I won't uh, beg on universities considering it's only been three weeks. So that's not, if if we're talking complex records, that's not that long. Uh, But I am still waiting on a lot of records from my old job, from the governor's office, from Department of Transportation, from ADOA, and I think from Corrections. So I've got a few agencies on my list. I too have an agency from the state on my list. The Department of Administration since last year has failed to produce underlying records tied to uh, workplace complaints, and I am still waiting for those records. I would love to see them soon. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to The Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. I'm on Twitter at Mpoletta, M-P-O-L-L-E-T-T-A. At Lily Alta, L-I-L-Y-A-L-T-A. I'm at Dustin Gardner, and that's G-A-R-D-I-N-E-R. Um, I'm at Rachel Leingang, L-E-I-N-G-A-N-G. Thanks to the politics team and also our producers, Haley Sanchez and Carly Henry. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. See you next week.